listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. If you're interested in human rights, then you're listening to The Rights Pod. I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Rights Pod. So today I'm handing over the rights pod to one of our human rights students, Kira Jasper, to talk about Indonesia. Kira has spent quite a bit of time studying and working in Indonesia. In fact, she would be in Indonesia right now if it wasn't for the coronavirus pandemic. Previously, Kira worked at LAPE, or the Indonesian Institute for an Independent Judiciary, which is a leading NGO in judicial reform in Indonesia. Kira sat down with two of her former colleagues and experts at LEAP to discuss their experiences and challenges working in Indonesia. This conversation was recorded on May 31st, 2020. If you're interested in human rights, then you're listening to The Rights Pod. Hi, my name is Kira Jasper. I'm a student studying history and the law at Stanford University and minoring in human rights. Um, and I'm really honored today to be sitting down with two experts from LEAP, Arsul and Aze. I had the opportunity to go to Indonesia for the first time in 2015 as a part of a cultural exchange program. And it was there that my eyes really opened up to the possibilities of cultural exchange and what we can learn from other countries and experts in other places as well about our own systems in addition to theirs. I had the opportunity to go back to Indonesia in 2018 as an intern for the Indonesian Institute for an Independent Judiciary, or LEAP. They are a group of experts working on judicial reform issues in Indonesia, specifically improving the confidence of the judiciary system. From that experience, I understood that this was a place I wanted to spend more time, and I knew that the best way to do that would be learning Indonesian, which motivated me to come back to Indonesia for what I had hoped would be one academic year, but ended up being less than two months. From that experience, though, I've been trying to learn and understand more about how COVID-19 has impacted the judiciary system and the working of LEAP. Before we begin, I want to provide a brief context of Indonesian history so that you will understand a little more about the context of our discussion. So Indonesia's motto is Binika Tunggal Ika, which translates to unity and diversity. And I think this phrase really sums up what Indonesia's state philosophy for tolerance and respect is. For the hundreds of indigenous languages spoken, the six official religions practiced, and the cultures of over 17,000 islands. Indonesia is actually the fourth most populous country in the world and has the largest number of Muslims in the world as well. Um, But the story of unity is not a linear process. After 350 years of colonization from the Dutch, Portuguese, French, and British, as well as the Japanese during World War II, Indonesia finally declared its independence in 1945. And the president after 1945 was a man named Sukarno, who was an influential nationalist leader. And he tried to unite the country around this idea of Pancasila, which is a cohesive national identity. But an attempted military coup in 1965 forced Sukarno to step down, was used to justify the murder of an estimated 1 million alleged communists and brought a 31-year military dictatorship led by General Suharto. 
After a presidency characterized by economic prosperity, as well as turmoil and corruption, student protests from 1996 until 1998 ultimately forced Suharto to resign and began the reform period in Indonesia towards a democratic state. What's so interesting about Indonesia is that all of the reform period that has happened over the past 20 plus years has occurred because of civil society in areas spanning from economic development to ensuring greater governmental accountability to judicial independence. And one of the civil society organizations engaged in legal and judicial reform issues and activities in Indonesia is LAPE. Established in Jakarta, Indonesia in 1999, the founders of LAPE realized that the level of public confidence in the law and the judiciary was not optimal in the wake of Indonesia's independence. And specifically, they realized that the law and judiciary were not yet fully independent because of ongoing collusion, corruption, and nepotism. Today, with other stakeholders, LAPE is striving for the realization of judicial independence through policy research and advocacy activities on the development of judicial administration and legal and policy development. Their work collectively strives to protect human rights, the rule of law, and establish a system of checks and balances in Indonesian government. There are so many different areas of the law that LEAP works on, and one of those areas is criminal justice reform. So today, I'm going to be sitting down with Aze and Arsul, who are two experts from LEAP, to discuss what work they've done before COVID-19 and how COVID-19 has shifted the direction of their work in addition to getting their opinions on what the future of Indonesia's judiciary will look like for years to come. Arsul joined LAEP in 2002 and is the head of Judicial and Policy Studies Division. He studied at the University of Indonesia with a concentration in criminal law. He's also a professor at Jintera Law School in the Department of Criminal Law. Aze joined LAEP in 2015 and currently researches topics relating to criminal law and anti-corruption. He graduated from the University of Indonesia in 2014, also with a concentration in criminal law, and is a professor at Jintera Law School in the Department of Criminal Law. Thank you both so much for agreeing to discuss different topics with me today um, and your work, as well as the situation in Indonesia in light of COVID. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. To start, I'm curious when and why you both decided to start working for LAPE and if you had worked at a different organization before and what is your, your process and journey of coming to LAPE? So, uh, sit me first. Yeah, yeah. so you can start. Yep. Okay. Uh, I was joined in with LAPE since 2002 after I finished my voluntary work in assistance of public defender in Jakarta Legal Aid in 2001 and 2002. And then I joined late first because I interested in the issues of judiciary. Uh, and, and then uh, I don't really, I didn't really interested in lawyering. And so uh, I joined uh, late and then another reason because late it was founded by my colleagues in university. Then I know the person, so I know them well. So I joined them in 2002, uh, until now, so almost 20 years. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, LEAP is almost 20, I think it's, its birthday is this year, right? Yes, For 20 years. Yes, it's, it's 20 years. The wow. formal one is in 2002, but it started in 1999. Wow, that's amazing. And Aze, you joined in 2015. What was your, your process and journey of joining? Yeah, uh, I joined with LEAP in 2015 after I finished my college in University of Indonesia 
Then uh, during my college, I heard a lot about leave from my friends maybe in college and my senior. And I read about uh, what leave done with the judiciary. And then uh, I think that lab is like quite different than or among the uh, another NGO because uh, lab make like a direct involvement with the Supreme Court. So for me, it more like you know make a good impact directly uh, when like there there is like outsider from the Supreme Court make the some application and Supreme Court heard about it and make like decision or else. Uh, so uh, I think LAP is very good place to study and work. Yeah, that's why I joined LAP. Yeah, I feel like that's very unique for an organization to have such a strong relationship with the Supreme Court and to do advocacy work in partnership because a lot of different organizations, yeah, it seems as if they're more watchdog or they have a different methodology, which are still important for accountability. But yeah, I think it's also really unique. You all have worked on tons of projects of the ones that you've already worked on. Is there one that stands out as one that you're the most proud of or you found the most interesting? It's quite difficult to say. (laughs) Some of the works that I really like, it's not quite uh, impactful actually, but sometimes the works that I've done that I didn't really like, somehow more impactful than the one that I thought it would have a significant impact if done correctly by the by the Supreme Court. That's so but the whole process of our work itself, I think it's the, the most respectful with the Supreme Court. When we start late in early two thousand, I joined in two thousand two. At the time late was just like any other NGOs and at the time it was the time when rising of NGOs actually prior to that and before 1998 it's only few NGOs exist in, in, in Indonesia but after that there's a th- millions of NGOs that established after 1998 one of them are was late and at the time late is not close as uh, with the Supreme Court as now so that's one when we joined when I joined the late. And like I, I told you before, the process itself that it make me proud to be work in Supreme Court we, because the most significant work is not a particular work works with uh, in late, but the whole process itself because we transform I think from the our Supreme Court and our judiciary from the one of the closest institution in Indonesia to become one of the most open institution in Indonesia. And, and that's the, the achievement of late. We're not uh, the only one that done this, but we are one of the few that done this uh, approach. And after uh, most, almost 20 years, we got close connection with the Supreme Court as now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, very <laughs> eye-opening as well. I think, yeah, often people tend to measure success with these short bursts of projects, but it's that's a really good point that it is an entire process and movement of change. Aze, do you have a particular project or do you sort of agree with Arsul's mentality of it? Yeah, every project is special, actually, because it has a different topic, different approach from the law, human rights, and else. But maybe if I have to choose the most proud of my project is the research on interpretation of blasphemy law in Indonesia uh, because we successfully make a good research how to 
uh, to balance the current condition with the current law when now Indonesia still has the blasphemy uh, article and then how to balance it with the human rights principles and uh, we also make like a training to the uh, judges to inform about uh, our uh, research and then train them to how to interpret the uh, the, the, the the blasphemy article and for myself uh, it's so uh, it's so special because i can learn with professor david Kohn directly because i'm not the stanford university student but i can study and learn a lot about human rights principle and uh, about the rule of law principles with him. Before we go on, I, I wanted to just clarify a few things in case people that are listening don't know the context of why there were so many more NGOs created after 1998. Um, so for Arsil, you were talking briefly about the process of just this bloom of NGOs after 1998. Could you just briefly talk about what was happening historically that caused this? To- well, okay. Yeah, Indonesia in uh, after 1965-66, uh, 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 in 1965, there's a changing regime in, in, in Indonesia. And from a socialist era, a socialist-like uh, regime to more American-minded era. And it leads to dictatorship since 1966 until 1998. And we don't really have a free speech or free assembly, uh, something like that. So, but the governments uh, allowed only few NGOs during that time. One of them, the biggest one was uh, Jakarta Legal Aid and uh, Legal Aid Foundation. But uh, it changed until uh, in, in 1998, since uh, Suharto, the, 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 the president at that time, was uh, stepped down. And there's a new era in Indonesia. We call it reform era. And uh, after that, there's a lot of NGOs established. And one of the, one of the, the causes, because a lot of donors came to Indonesia and gave money to us, <laughs> actually. And to do reforms, and so, so that's what happened. So since I think 1999 or 2000, there's a yeah, there's a NGO boom in, in in Indonesia until 2004, and few of them are dead, and few of them are survive until now, and uh, we're lucky to be the one that sur- still survive until now. Especially in Jakarta, there's uh, hundreds of new NGOs established in, in that era because of the changes in, in politics. I think you're being too humble though, because obviously none of the Reformation period would have happened without the Indonesian students like you and Tita who founded LEAP <laughs> protesting to, to cause yeah. this change in the first place. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, uh, uh, in 1998 is uh, the time when yeah, uh, there's a student movement in 1998 that leads to the step down of our uh, former president that we thought, we think uh, is a dictator. There's a military, yeah, not so junta, but it's a military types of, of governments for years, uh, about 30 years, that we live under military uh, regime. And in 1998, we managed uh, 
to have demonstration for months since the biggest one since February to May. But prior to that, such a, a lot of small uh, demonstration against the government at that time. But the biggest one was in, in, in 1998 until the, the step down of the former president Suharto. Yeah. That leads to the new new era. We call it the reform era until now. That's amazing. Um, and I really want to briefly touch on something Aze had also said. Could you, Aze, describe a little bit about what the Blasphemy Project was in case people don't know what it is? <laughs> we make a research on, maybe the, the heavy is uh, the story of the article, Blasphemy, in the world and in particularly in Indonesia, why that article exists in 1960, maybe? Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, Bangasi. 1965. And then we make like a court decision analysis. Uh, that make uh, like a quite different than another research on blasphemy because uh, we we make a court uh, we we make a decision court decision analysis. And then uh, after the research, we make a, like what I said before. We make a training to the judges to give some knowledge, maybe new knowledge or maybe enrich, like, like enrichment for them, uh, how to interpret the article in the practice. Yeah, I think that the difference is, uh, was in the approach of the studies. Since uh, we have this law since 19, 1965, but it's quite rarely used by the, the, the government. But in, since 1998, there's uh, quite numbers of cases that we thought that the case is very weak, but the government pushed the case. And a lot of studies and a lot of advocacy to abolish this, this, this law, but it's always failed. Quite numbers of uh, NGOs that try to judicially refute the, 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 the law in constitutional court, but the constitutional court rejected the petition. And so in 2000, what, 2007 or 17 or 18, I, I forgot, a few years ago, we tried to different approach. So not, not to abolish, but to reinterpret the law itself, to make it a narrower interpretation on what is blasphemy actually. I think that's what uh, this study is quite different with previous studies, because most of the studies focusing on how to abolish the, 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 the law itself. Kailana, who was another Stanford intern at LAEP two summers ago, and I were able to work on the, the tail end of that project. And that was incredibly fascinating Hi. to not only read the study, but then also attend the training of judges to try to understand how to more accurately interpret the law. Since I think all, almost all cases, I think from your study of heresy were charged as blasphemy. The procedure is quite different mm -hmm. because when you charge to heresy, you cannot charge just like that. They, they have to, uh, another procedure that the government has to, to make a yeah, statement that this particular groups of us, uh, beliefs of the group is defiant, defiant with the formal religion that, that accepted in, in, in Indonesia. And you should not 
spreading your beliefs. If you still spreading the beliefs, then you can uh, be brought to the court. So that's the step of the heresy. But in the blasphemy, no, you you can jump to the to the charge. And most uh, some of the cases are mixed with these issues. A lot of defiant groups uh, beliefs that charged with blasphemy that actually is not it should not be that case. But that won't happen. And we try to to change the, the the way of the thinking of the the judge in that kind of training. When you were in Jakarta, yeah, yeah, I think it was when the first day of the internship was the training. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You joined the training, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, it was a very uh, eye-opening introduction, I think, to a lot of the uh, yeah. complications, maybe, of the of the legal <laughs> system and judicial procedures in Indonesia, especially regarding um, different interpretations and the problems of judges thinking that they can't make a ruling because of fear of their lives or fear of the courthouse being yeah. burned down. And yeah. I think that was a very interesting perspective um, that I hadn't really considered or thought about or understood was a problem before that training. I really feel like there needs to be an entire podcast dedicated to just blasphemy law, like the whole project, because it was incredible. Um, but I think the report is also in English on the Center for Human Rights website. I really appreciated how much I learned from the whole summer, but especially from reading the report, it was incredible. I wanted to maybe switch a little bit and talk about COVID-19, specifically how COVID is impacting your work now, if at all. And if you're still working on the same projects or if there are other initiatives that you've joined as a response um, to the crisis. We have quite numbers of projects right now, mostly unrelated to the COVID. That is our previous project that we try to, to conduct uh, before the, the, this, this pandemic starts. But after the, the, this pandemic starts, we also try to, to push uh, our Supreme Court to make a policy on how the court, uh, how the, the Supreme Court, uh, the court manage, manage itself during the coronavirus. Uh, we now helping the Supreme Court to make a, 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 some kind of regulation to make electronic courts, especially in the criminal law, in, in the criminal uh, cases. Because now uh, the, the judiciary, the, the criminal justice system is facing a quite a difficult, difficult uh, situation because you cannot bring the, the defendant to the court because uh, the, this physical distancing policy. But you, you, you also cannot help this defendant in the jail for such a long time, you still have to provide some justice, right, to the court. Yeah. So one of the solutions is to create a virtual course, right? And now that's what we're focusing now in the last couple of months to help the Supreme Court to create policy and a regulation on how the courts manage itself to do a virtual criminal courts. Wow, would that only be the Supreme Court or would that try to be expanded to courts across Indonesia? Yeah, it's cross, uh, uh, court across Indonesia, but the one that uh, responsible to make this policy is just the Supreme Court because okay. the court is under the Supreme Court's administration. So we have to uh, 
so in the several months uh, or weeks, the Supreme Court will create, uh, publish their regulation on how the courts conduct the virtual courts. It will be a regulation that used by all of the courts in Indonesia. Yeah, maybe if if I have uh, give some like additional information also, Kira the the lab also join with another NGO with EGRS and ICGR to uh, like a conduct research or make some recommendation to detention center because if you want to conduct like a virtual courtroom, so one of the problem is how the detention center how how they can uh, do the virtual court because in a normal situation. That's not their obligation to, to help court proceeding in the detention center, right? So LAB uh, and ICGR and IGRS now do some research, some study, and try to give recommendation to detention center how to conduct virtual proceeding. Maybe I I don't know what what they exactly good terms for that but uh, how how to make the virtual court in detention center yeah the, the background is this in the pandemic era the detention center make a policy that no one comes out and no one comes in so there's no new people that will arrest in the detention center and no one gets out at the same time the courts still have make a proceeding so the solution is uh, the virtual courts but the problem is most of the defendants are in the detention center so they have to provide some rooms and facilities so the defendant in the detention center still can access the court so we have a two two project one that helped the supreme court to make a regulation on how the courts make a regulation on yeah. how the virtual courts will work and then the other side to provide the detention center's institution as a supplement to the this regulation yeah. how the detention center provides facilities and access to the people in a detention center to still can access the court wow so i had read previously that lots of the prisons had released a number of prisoners in response yeah. to covid because yeah. the yeah. populations yeah but that was only individuals that were in prison already. That did not apply then yeah. to defendants yeah. that were standing trial? Yeah, that did not apply to the people still in jail. Just for the inmates. What is the condition yeah. of people that are standing trial? Is it still very crowded or are those conditions a bit more permissible in the context of, of social distancing? Like, are social distancing measures still able to happen in the place where defendants standing trial are located now? Well, it's still high, but we have a separate institution for detention for the jail the the one in in the police uh, office and in the detention center that managed by the ministry of justice so the, the policy that came from the ministry of justice no new people waiting for the for the uh, trial so it becomes a problems to the police because they have some li uh, so limited uh, space for people that get arrest and they cannot send this those people to the detention center. So the numbers of uh, people that arrested in the police station is quite high. But the people that arrest in the det detention center under the Ministry of Justice, it's getting low because of the policy. Mm. Yeah. So although the numbers of the trend of the people that get arrest now is quite uh, slow down because of this pandemic right now, because uh, uh, the, the, the chief of police said to the, the officers that not to easily 
arrest people. But still, the police most of the time arrest the defendants. So the numbers still quite high, but not as high as a normal situation. Do you think that correlates because crime overall has decreased, or do you just believe that it's because they're not arresting people I think for it's whatever reason? Yeah, I think it's both because well, uh, because of the policy and because of the, I, uh, perhaps the numbers of crime itself slowing down because people are in their house most of the time so it's hard for the thieves to to <laughs> to steal and in the street also the it's quite not as crowded as a normal time so it changed to make some troubles quite slowing down so i think it's uh, uh, it's both combination uh, of the policy policy and the situation itself it's hurting for the criminal to to do crimes <laughs> i think uh, perhaps uh, particularly in, in in some 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 particular types of crimes like thieves or something like that yeah, i think it's getting lower because of this uh, situation interesting i also wanted to ask you about an, another project that i know you guys are working on or maybe had yeah. recently developed so i was doing some research on the uh, incarceration rate in Indonesia and realize that Indonesia has one of the highest prison populations in the world. And over the past decade, the number of incarcerated individuals has more than doubled with more than 280,000 incarcerated individuals across Indonesia, even though the maximum capacity of prisons is only 132,000 inmates. So I was curious if you could talk a bit more about your work regarding incarceration rates in Indonesia and specifically why pre before COVID-19, the number of inmates has gotten so high and then what work you all did in helping to advise the government's decision to lower the capacity of the prisons in light of covid yeah. we realized these problems i think uh, about 10 years ago we 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 know this this problem and we we realized that one of the cause one of the factors that become increasement of the uh, uh, inmates and become a overcapacity problems was the law itself because there's no alternative also very few alternative for the judge to choose the types of punishment because we still use a Dutch law a criminal code and the problem was the fine system is not updated uh, uh, since 1960 and we tried to warn the government about this 10 years ago I personally warned the ministry almost 10 years ago and we tried to, to warn this and and propose them to update the value of the fine because if you don't update the value of the fines uh, you can imagine the, the fine until now the actual fines uh, in, in in criminal code is for theft 900 rupees 900 rupees is uh, less than one cent us dollar cent so oh my God. you can imagine that the judge will not use this fine, so the, there's no option. So uh, the other option was just a prison. So slowly, because of this unupdating uh, fine uh, regulation in our criminal code, uh, slowly but sure, the primary punishment, the types of punishment that can choose by the judge on the prison. We warned this uh, uh, 10 years ago to the government at the time 
our colleagues become uh, vice of Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Law at that time in 2011. But unfortunately, he was not that interested in this kind of problems and solution. So we came to the Supreme Court because there's a one big case at the time. It's very small. It's a petty crime, but get become big. And we realized that one of the problems uh, because of the value of the money in our criminal court is not updating since 1960s. And I, uh, Chief of Justice at the time was aware of this situation and he agreed uh, and asked us to create a draft of the solution. And we, we I personally wrote the, the draft of the law, of the Supreme Court law, that make uh, some kind of adjustment on value of the uh, um, uh, rupiahs in 60 to, uh, to now. But somehow this Supreme Court regulation has managed to pass, but it's not used by the, our law enforcement. So yeah, that becomes problems. And because the judges, uh, the courts all over Indonesia are still focusing on imprisonment instead of fine. So it seems like there's there's multiple issues here, but perhaps the two yeah. biggest ones are first, the law needs to be updated. And then on top of that, yeah. there needs to be greater education about what that update of the law is so that it is enforced yeah. more properly. Aze, do you have any thoughts or perspective on what you all have done, I guess, in light of COVID or previously <coughs> regarding criminal, the changes of, of these laws and incarceration? Maybe it's like what Bang Arthur said, yeah, because if we look to the detention center or prison problems, many, maybe government agencies, government officers, and maybe many people uh, don't realize about the problem that Arsene said before. That we have, we have like, it's it, it's really basic problems that we uh, never update the amount or the value of the fine in criminal court. So there is no alternative for adjustment for the punishment. And then it contributes to the high number of inmates. Maybe it, it's really basic problems that not everyone realizes. Do you think that this, I guess, lack of change is because of maybe the court's unwillingness to change? Or do you think that there are other factors for why after 10 years or after so many issues with the implementation of the law, there has yet to be substantial revision? I think uh, it's combination because one of the biggest problems now that we realize now that at least in criminal justice system there's no clear what institution that responsible for this administration of the criminal justice system so all of the institution that the police the prosecutor the court aware of this problem I think and I know a lot of judges uh, prosecutors and police that always complain about uh, these issues, but there's no clear uh, institution in government that clear responsibility to manage this problem. Who is responsible to update this law, to focusing this problem and to manage it and to, to propose to the parliament to solve this problem? There's no clear institution. So it's hard to say that this unwillingness from the courts is just a matter of uh, political willingness. No, it's, it's beyond that. Because the government itself, especially the detention center, the detention correctional department, not department, director general, aware of this problem, but they don't have authority to change law. And just like our problems in blasphemy law or 
any other criminal law. Everybody is complaining about it. Even the government complains about it. A lot of things in criminal justice system. That makes sense. So it's more than that. It's unclear which system of government needs to be taking the responsibility more so yeah. than the lack yeah. of people wanting to change. Yeah. In light of COVID-19, a lot of prisoners from prisons within Indonesia were released to try to reduce the capacity of the prisons because if they're, if they're yeah. overpopulated, then obviously COVID-19 can spread more easily. I was curious what kind of process that or what kind of process of work you all did to, to make that change of the initiative? And if other countries in Southeast Asia, as far as you know, um, have followed suit to do a similar type of change? Well, what our government, well, we didn't do anything about it as an, as an institution at late, but the government, the, the Ministry of Law, especially the, the, the Directorate General of uh, Correctional, yeah, Correctional uh, System uh, Institution that manage this this uh, policy, and because they they realized since ten years ago that the, the the prison is over capacity, and they have to release more people, more inmates, and this situation uh, become their their momentum to make this is happening so what they what they've done actually is based on the law we have uh, facilities for for inmates like a probation uh, system and then assimilation mechanism that the people that still uh, inmates but they have they can go uh, outside to assimilate uh, with uh, societies and they have uh, but what they've done uh, was to ease the procedures to do that. So they can manage because they they uh, loosening the regulation. So they they cannot they can release under quote uh, quote unquote release more inmates than you uh, usual. But it's not just uh, re releasing the inmates. They still actually is uh, are a prisoner, but they can go outside. That's the policy we have uh, types of another facility was uh, we call it remisi it's a uh, Dutch language remisi it's a uh, reducing reducing the, the sentence the amount of punishment yeah, yeah the, the amount, amount of punishment, of punishment uh, because of the good behavior in prison we have a regulation for that and that's a regulation that used by the ministry to release these people related to the COVID-19. Uh, but uh, it's only about 3,000 something. So only less than 20% that release uh, to the society. But after that, uh, the, the, the ministry got backlash from the society. And then after that, they slowing down the, the policy. So I, I heard that there's a several phase to release the prisoners. There's a two phase at least for the general criminal criminals as a death or something like that. And then the other one, the special uh, inmates uh, like corruption, drugs, and another one, uh, others, a special case. And because of the backlash uh, and the second phase that uh, in narcotics uh, are pending until, I don't know, until when, because of this backlash from the society. And because the, yeah, I think that the problem is that the communication from the, was not as good as it should. The, the public relation 
from the ministry and the, the society, but why they release these prisoners, 30,000 prisoners at that time. And because of the bad communication, they got backlash, and after that, they don't want to release another one. We call it in Indonesian language, pundung. Pundung, apa itu je? Pundung je. What is pundung? Pundung is? Uh, ngambek. Ngambek. What is ngambek? Get, they get angry and then don't want to do anything about it anymore. Cranky. <laughs> Something cranky. like that. Like a, cranky. Like a cranky? Yeah. Yeah. Cranky. But yeah. 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 Cranky. So some of the problem and, was that the, the public was not happy with the release yeah. of so many prisoners because yeah. in part the government did not clearly communicate what their policy was yes. going to be. Yes. And what are people's main concerns and what do you think is the greatest misconception as to what the government did not clearly communicate to the people? Like why are the people confused? There's a two moment. First, when the, the ministry discussed it with the parliament, they, and then the ministry somehow managed to talk about the corruptors or the corruption prisoner. The ministry said that he also want to release corruptors, a corruption a prisoner age 60s above and get bad health condition to get released. And in Indonesia, we have to give clear background. Since 1998, there's a big fight on corruption. So a lot of people don't like corruptors and they don't want corruptors to get released from jail. That's it. So any policy that make them get early release will get critics from the public. That's one thing. And then another one was after the, 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 the release, there's a news that said that a lot of inmates that get early release done something bad again. So you also mentioned, um, and Azay, feel free to jump in as well on this topic. So if somebody was charged with a narcotics-related crime, were they released or were they not allowed to be released? Well, for the narcotics and corruption and terrorism, there's a set, there's a quite different procedure to get early release. That's yeah. what the law said. And most of the inmates in in those kind of didn't meet the, the requirement that's a problem so what the, the the requirement is they have to be a justice collaborator to get uh, some facilities like remissi or assimilation or probation they have to become the justice collaborator or informant and most of them cannot meet the requirement that's what the ministry want to change the, he want to change the law to get ease to the law so regardless to the justice collaborator or not these people uh, inmates uh, in narcotics and corruption if, especially in corruption if the person is are above 60 years old and get bad health condition regardless if you are justice collaborator or not you will get early release and in narcotics, if you get sentence less than 10 years, you will get early release. He has to change the law and he proposed a bill 
and the people rejected. The narcotics prisoners are the majority of the prisoner itself. It's 60% of the inmates are oh narcotics God. related crimes. 60%, but are most of them hmm. non-violent or violent? Non-violent. Non-violent. Yeah. yeah, maybe most of them is drug users, maybe? Users, yeah, drug users. Yeah, drug users. Drug users. Drug users. They just use for themselves. 60% of all prisoners are charged with drug-related crimes, so such as like yeah. smoking weed or doing something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Wow, but they're not allowed to be released because drug-related offenses are classified differently than petty yes. crime or yes. other. Yes, yeah, oh, and classified wow. with the same category with the corruption and terrorism. All this... of the drug-related offenses, <laughs> including the drug using. Oh my god. Yeah. Are there initiatives <laughs> to try to ch to lessen the penalty of a drug related offense at all or is that yeah what yes. has been your work for that? There's a advocacy since years ago to change our narcotics law, drugs law, especially for the users. But until now, this, the law is still the same. Do you know if other countries in Southeast Asia have followed a similar suit as Indonesia in releasing some of their prisoners to decrease the capacity? Or do you know? If I think most of the world have, especially the, 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 the countries that have problems with the upper capacity, have the similar approach to get to release some of their prisoners. Like Afghanistan, they release thousands of prisoners, mostly political crimes. Political crimes are not the violence crime criminal so it's it's safe to release to release them to the society for the society not for the government <laughs> yeah but i think yeah yeah most of the countries that have problems with upper capacity uh, release their numbers of prisoners so it's it's not just indonesia the un also makes some recommendation to these kinds of a policy for the countries like Indonesia to prevent the outbreak in prison because when you get outbreak in prison well uh, you cannot do nothing about it do you think that with a lot of the justice systems being put under pressure because of COVID-19 if they have a lot of prisoners in prison that the courts will start rethinking maybe what are the most important crimes to prosecute going forward or sort of change the mentality of incarceration? Or do you think that after the situation becomes safer, there won't really be as much of a willingness to change? The law enforcement understand that this problem, like I said before, and they, uh, they also re make circulation letter to the prosecutors and the police to not easily arrest people or charge with prisoner in prison. But the problem was uh, is the law itself. The law didn't give numbers of alternative for the prosecutor to, to charge and uh, types of punishment in the court to punish types of uh, uh, prison, uh, the defendant types of punishment so we have to do something about the law itself not just the willingness like I said before and the law enforcement agency understand that so it's not uh, uh, we have hopes in this in this COVID-19 or pandemic era because we know that the government, at, at least some of the law enforcement institutions, realize this problem. But still, we need to 
institution to manage uh, uh, this uh, this uh, apa ya? what, what do you call it? this this situation to make it happen and we still don't didn't don't see that there's a, a, a institution in the government that that, that uh, get the, the the responsibility for this like i said you before we 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 have the the supreme court to make regulation supreme court regulation about, about the uh, virtual court it's not the supreme court responsibility to do that it's the government responsibility but the government took no action about it <coughs> and also maybe if if if, if uh, i can make some additional uh, that there is not in this condition there is no regulation that um, that uh, regulate what what kind or what type of crime that should be proceeded in this time maybe if we look to the maybe the netherlands they had what types of crime that we should proceed now and then another crime is the prison is still in detention center and we will proceed after the condition is better and it's quite same what bang Asil said that the government took no action about it they don't make some changes about uh, the regulation of the type of punishment and that make a problem now because if we don't have regulation to decide what type of crime that should proceed now and with the condition all of the uh, defendant are in in the prison so they should be proceeded all now, and I think that it would make like be a lot of proceeding now because all of defendants are detained and they should be proceeded because all of detainees should be in the court with not in the uh, a long time, right? So maybe that's another problem also. Yeah, we have limits of time that uh, defendant get detained in jail. They they could not detain for forever. So in each phase, they have limited certain uh, days, uh, like in investigation for uh, twenty days, and they can apa perpanjang apa aja. Yeah, edit edit more extended. time. Like, another more time. Extended, yeah, extended. Another extended, extended. The maximum for thirty days. So they have limits of times on detainment. Mostly the, the death sentence cases uh, in, in narcotics is when you sell or are caught with numbers of kilograms of narcotics, any types of narcotics, you will get that penalty. But most of the cases are it's not, not like that. Not most of the cases are just small possession, small numbers of possession of the, the narcotics. As a bit of a conclusion to this conversation, I wish we could talk forever and I hope that um, I'll be able to come back to Indonesia and continue a lot of these conversations. Um, and I mean, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, <laughs> if things get yeah. better. Um, yeah, you still have your stuff in our offices. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely thought I would be back by the summer, so <laughs> I'm so you will, sorry. You will, you will be back. Somehow. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's like a guarantee. Back.
It's like a yeah. guarantee that you will be back yeah. Uh, yeah. soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys can use whatever's in there. I'm so sorry again <laughs> for leaving all of it's it. It's okay. <laughs> Maybe you can use, I think there's shampoo. You can wash the cats with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess as a bit of a conclusion, um, I wanted, I know so much has changed and I personally think so much will change regarding what matters in the criminal justice system. Um, and I think specifically when we talked about trying to reduce the capacity of prisons in Indonesia and the US, there's also a huge issue yeah. of over-incarceration. But I guess more generally, do you think that the perception of Indonesian law and the justice system has increased in confidence since 1998? Or do you think people are still generally skeptical of its fairness? I think uh, generally still skeptical about our justice system, even though there's a lot of reform done, a lot of changes, a lot of good things that came out from the court, but still generally people still upset with our justice system. That's fair to say that. Aze, what would you say? In my opinion, there's a lot of reform in the procedure, in the law, but there is not maybe like a few reform on the people who possible to proceed all the procedures on all the law. So we have like what Arisa said, we have a lot of reform, maybe particularly in judiciary. Uh, we have uh, like chamber system, we have jurisprudence book, many of reform, many of good reform. But we still have the challenge how to reform the judges, how how they think, how they interpret the law. So that's what Arisa said about many people uh, still upset with the quality of the court decision, uh, how to judge to consider the fact in the courtroom and uh, how they decide the punishment, uh, decide uh, the cases. So that's what makes people still uh, upset. But uh, if we uh, look in the general, there's a lot of reform that if it could it could be done with people, uh, maybe it, it will be great, but we still have problem with the quality of the person who have the responsibility, who have the obligation to, like, like a judge, to decide the case and other else. We still have problems with the legal certainty. We are, yeah. all of us in LAPS have a legal background, and we know in most of the cases that this type of cases should not get imprisonment or vice versa, but they still get imprisonment. So sometimes enough reasoning about the case until it's, it's happened. So it creates uh, legal uncertainty in, in Indonesia. As a person that works almost 20 years in this field and done a lot of works with the reform, and if I get some trouble with the law, law enforcement, or if I have a case and, and I, I have to go to court, I still not believe in the system itself. Mm. I still don't believe that that the disease will come out with the justice and, and legal certainty. It's sad to say, but yeah, it's uh, what happens in, in, in Indonesia. Yeah. yeah, what gives me hope working with you all is that through all of these trainings and also a lot of former late workers that are becoming judges, hopefully that system, at least in the, the types of people that are understanding the law and giving judgments can be a bit more qualified and more just. Of course, we as a human being can send the people to the moon, so we can manage to solve these simple problems, I think. Yeah. 
thank you all so much for this incredible conversation. And I think that this will be something we will continue to talk about. Um, I'm very grateful that Professor David Cohen and the Center for Human Rights has extended this opportunity for Stanford students to continue to learn about the Indonesian system from you all um, and to use this knowledge as a way to improve our system back home. Thank you so much to Kira for hosting this wonderful podcast. And a big, big thank you to LAPE experts, Arzal and Aze for speaking with us. To learn more about Arzal and Aze's work, the work of LAPE or Indonesia in general, check out the resources in our show's show notes. To keep human rights close to your home, subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Rights Pod. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.